Joseph. Uh, Genesis 40. For those of you who are guests with us, welcome. We're thankful that you're here. This is kind of our practice is uh, to take a book of scripture and to work through it expositionally, to work through it piece by piece, and to see what the original intent was and how those eternal truths are translated over time and culture uh, and impact our lives today. And so we're doing that when working through the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Pentateuch, which is Moses' first five books, and uh, here this last uh, patriarch, or the son of the patriarch, Joseph, he's probably the best of them all, is what we've seen. Uh, been very encouraged by his morality. Moses uses him as sort of an example of a wise man, a prototype um, of the coming Christ as well. So Joseph is this favored son um, of Jacob and Rachel, and he's, the, he's had some dreams early on in his life that prompted a great struggle within his family. Uh, his brothers hated him because he dreamed of greatness and he dreamed of them bowing down to him, which they did not like, him being one of the youngest boys. Um, so he's hated, betrayed, and ends up being sold by his brothers into Egypt. So a man named Potiphar buys him when Joseph is 17 years old. Um, and he is favored by Potiphar and ends up being exalted in Potiphar's house and is really second in command only to Potiphar himself. Well, he ran into some trouble with Potiphar's wife um, who sought to sleep with him, which he refused. Uh, so he's the righteous responder to adulterous advances. But then uh, she tricked him, deceived him, lied about him, and uh, told Potiphar that he was attempting to rape her, so he gets thrown into jail. And so we left him two weeks ago in the bottom of Pharaoh's dungeon, and he's favored by the warden, so sort of a similar pattern to what happened in Potiphar's house. He's favored by the warden, but doomed to this incarceration with no trial, no release date. He just has life ahead of him in darkness. So, again, 17 years old when he sold to Potiphar, and then this account that we read in chapter 40, the prison dreams, take place when he's 28 years old. We know that because he's 30 when he stands before Potiphar, and chapter 41, verse 1 says that two full years passed between the two events. So what we don't know is when it was between being sold to Potiphar and these prison dreams that Joseph was sent to jail. So we don't know how long he was in Potiphar's house compared to how long he was in prison, but likely, let's say he was, let's just split the difference and say approximately he's in Potiphar's house for five years. Well, now he's been in prison for five years as well, six years. And so he, this has been quite a long time that's passed. So imagine that much of your life passing because of unjust accusations. These are, these are some pretty dark things that have happened to Joseph. Two of the most horrible things that can happen to a human being. Betrayal by your family and then false accusation, which a judge agrees with. These are, these are some pretty difficult things that he's faced. But now uh, we find him here in the prison. It came to pass, verse 40, and our scene opens... Really, uh, scene one introduces two new characters, Pharaoh's butler and the baker, only missing the candlestick maker, who had enraged the king, and they landed themselves in the same very prison that Joseph was essentially ruling over. Uh, they're placed under Joseph's authority, end scene, and another unmentioned amount of time passes. Probably shorter rather than longer, but... We just needed to know that these two characters were in prison. 
Then they, the next scene opens after kind of a particularly troubling night for these two, the butler and the baker, or the cupbearer and the baker. They both have experienced some unnerving dreams that have some odd parallels to each other, so they are quite concerned. And Joseph, performing his morning rounds, caring for the people under uh, his authority, shows up to their cell, and he sees that they are quite downcast. And so he inquires the cause of their depression. Well, the unnerved prisoners reply that they both have had dreams, but they no longer have access to the means of interpreting them. How horrible this must be, right? Pause for a note here. At this time, dreams were, quote, a prime vehicle of divine revelation. This is how God speaks to people quite often during this time. And Joseph agrees with them on that point, but then departs from their common viewpoint that professional magicians are required to interpret the official's dreams. Instead, what Joseph does in the text is he emphasizes the source of interpretation as God himself, believing that it was God who sent the revelation. Certainly, it would be God who could give the proper interpretation of it. So, in a bold twist, Joseph invites them to tell their dreams to him. This is quite significant. It indicates a few really important things to us. First, Joseph believes that these dreams have a true meaning. He's not playing a game. He doesn't think they're immaterial. I mean, dreams are immaterial, but I mean, he doesn't think they're non-substantive. He thinks that there's a true meaning to them. Secondly, he believes he can give it to them because God is with him. Right, if God's the giver of the interpretation, and as we saw in a theme two weeks ago uh, in the story of Potiphar, that God was with Joseph, God was with Joseph, God was with Joseph, then certainly God could give Joseph the interpretation. Now, if you think through his life as a whole, this is a massive statement of faith. Think about some of the other implications. You remember that Joseph, when he was young, he received a few dreams with significant interpretations as well. These sheaves that bowed to him, all his brothers uh, imaged as sheaves, and they bowed to Joseph, the singular standing sheaf in the middle. Or that the sun and the moon, his mother and father, and these stars bowed to Joseph. They worshipped him. He believed that those dreams still had meaning, and that he knew the true interpretation of them, and that that would come to pass while he's sitting five to ten years into Egyptian prison cell. That's, that's quite a move of faith for him. Because if, the, if that weren't the case, then surely he would have just, he would have dismissed their dreams, right? He would have said, oh, well, you know, one time I dreamed that my family bowed down to me and look at me now. I know he believes that this will happen there's still fulfillment to come. And so 11 years later, Joseph maintains faithful hope in the God of Revelation. So after the invitation, both men decide to give their dreams to him, start with the butler. 
uh, and their dreams parallel their previous occupations. So the butler or the cupbearer, he dreams of a grapevine. And note all of the groups of three in his dreams. There was a vine that had three branches which budded, blossomed, and ripened. The butler then took them and he, or he took them, he pressed them, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. The title Pharaoh is used three times in the dream. The noun cup is used three times in the dream. Uh, and then Joseph's response, which we'll see in a moment, is used three times as well. So there's this theme of threes in the butler's dream. So what does this mean that these grapes that he presses and gives to Pharaoh? Well, Joseph quickly responds with an interpretation here, and he reveals that the three branches signified three days, after which Pharaoh would lift up the head. And that's the phrase that's used three times in Joseph's explanation. Pharaoh would lift up the head of the cupbearer, restoring his former position, exalting him. He gets his job back. Now, how did Joseph know the interpretation? Did he just take a good guess at it? No, God revealed it to him. And that's silent in the text aside from Joseph's statement that it's only God that gives the interpretation of dreams. And now that Joseph has the true interpretation, which we find out in three days was the true interpretation, then we know that God gave it to him. So it's actually a bold thing for him to pass on this interpretation, isn't it? Because once you've said, well, in three days this is going to happen, that's what God says. Three days isn't very much time for you to get out of jail or something just in case it doesn't come to pass, right? Three days time. And so, interestingly here, look at verse 14. Without skipping a beat, Joseph moves seamlessly from interpretation to request. He doesn't just say, here's what your dream means, have a great day. He's strategizing. He's trying to get out of jail. And so he sees this opportunity. If you're going to the court of Pharaoh and you're going to be restored, remember me, show kindness to me, make mention of me, get me out of here. Right? He's making a plan. And so he sets this in, uh, in motion here. And this really is the heart of chapter 40. Because we see Joseph's contentment in the middle of trial, but also his desire to move from prison uh, to freedom, really. Uh, Joseph is innocent. He bases his request to the butler on his innocence there. He's hoping and waiting. He's strategizing. He's proactive. He trusts in God. We'll return to this idea momentarily as part of the application of chapter 40. So, uh, the baker... Then, encouraged and invigorated by the interpretation of the cupbearer's dream, he submits his own dream for Joseph to decipher. Poor fellow. Uh, The baker has dreamed, according to his previous occupation, that there were three baskets on top of his head. They're filled with these delicious baked goods, and that the birds are eating from the uppermost basket. Joseph quickly responds with his interpretation as well. These three baskets also signify three days after which Pharaoh is going to lift up the head of the baker as well, in this case from off of the baker, and then hang the baker's body to be eaten by the birds. So it's a grotesque uh, end, the announcement of which I'm sure dismayed the baker. This is a, it was a very strong statement, too, because the Egyptians believed in the preservation of the body as a way into the afterlife. So for the baker's body to be exposed and eaten by birds is, means he has no hope of a future either. That's what it means anyways to, to him. And so uh, he's looking at this, and one uh, toward life, elevation, one toward death. 
and uh, great discouragement. So, obviously, Joseph uh, doesn't plead with him to remember him, show him kindness, make mention of him, and get me out of here, uh, because he won't be able to do that, and the scene ends. The next scene is brief, but essential. It opens on the dawn of the third day. After all, if Joseph's just said, three days later, these two significant things are going to happen, we need to see what happens in three days. And sure enough, uh, it is the dawn of the third day, Pharaoh's birthday, uh, which alternately may have been just a celebration of the anniversary of his coronation. We don't know if he was celebrated birthdays exactly the same way we do, but a big anniversary, and he's throwing a feast. Um, During this great feast, he lifts up the heads of the chief butler and the chief baker, and as Joseph had predicted by God's prompting, the chief butler once again instated to his position as cupbearer and the baker to death and hanging. This chapter ends with a very discouraging verse. Verse 23, yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Oof. (laughs) What a dull thud of a verse for Joseph, right? This was his one chance, and now the glimmer of hope was eliminated, the flicker of opportunity, this one thing that he'd schemed, and he'd schemed well, he'd schemed wisely, but his flicker of opportunity is snuffed out. And so we're going to pause for a moment and think on this the faith of Joseph in the middle of trial, because surely we have felt at least to a degree this exact same way. In the middle of a difficult trial, and we saw a path forward, we saw perhaps a way out, some glimmer of hope, and then we found a dead end at the end of that perceived opportunity. Perhaps a difficult season of time in marriage, or difficult even a week in marriage, and then you have date night. And it's like, oh, well, we'll be able to go out or do this thing or have a nice time, re-engage in conversation, whatever it might be. But as you know, date night, I mean, various frustrations just throw off the evening and it wasn't what you hoped. Financial struggles, right? Everything's kind of tight. But then you get a year-end bonus, only to arrive home and find that the water heater's out. Or you're like, I just, I just had this opportunity. It seemed like it might work. Or maybe you have an undesirable diagnosis. Um, but there's a treatment plan. There's a way forward. There's something that's going to solve the problem. And yet, in the middle of that path, your health doesn't seem to improve. It doesn't really work. So we often face this sort of cycle of frustration, hopeful opportunity that's going to get us out of it, and then that hope is dashed. How will we respond? Chapter 41, verse 1 says that two years passed after the butler forgot Joseph. That's a long time. And so how is Joseph responding? Well, I, I think it's important for us to reflect. It's one thing to enter a trial with faith. It's another thing to endure a trial with faith. You know, a day of difficulty is far different than a season of difficulty, isn't it? Short-term pain, okay, manageable, endurable, because it's going to stop. But when the pain of a trial persists, then our hearts are perhaps more honestly revealed. We often set a time limit on our discomfort. I do this. (laughs) I'm tempted towards this. Where we say, well, I know I can endure for this long. But the moment when the timer dings and the trouble remains, there's often a a switch that that a flip 
Mm, switch that flips, right? That often happens. And then we perhaps panic or are frustrated or angry because it hasn't gone away. And it reveals that we often trust the expiration of our trials rather than the one who sustains us through them. We often trust the expiration that it's going to end, and when it ends, I'll be okay, instead of trusting the one who gets us through them. What if Joseph had never gotten out? What if he stayed in prison until the day he died? What if your trial doesn't stop? What if the health trouble persists? What if the marriage difficulties persist? What do we do then? And so as we reflect on chapter 40, let's observe Joseph and learn from his faithful endurance. When when the darkness, perhaps, of depression or self-criticism deepens, or when you're weary in the battle against sin, in the battle against pride or lust or discontent or anger, your marriage is frustrating, your spouse disappointing, when you're tired of the persistent drain of your work situation or that coworker that's so annoying or the boss that's frustrating or you can't get the raise that you deserve or perhaps your health doesn't seem to improve despite all of the medical and the practical steps that you're taking. Remember Joseph. Remember him and be encouraged by the simple tenacity of his faith. Remember Hebrews 11. Remember the hall of faithful servants of God who persisted in grace through suffering. Remember Paul who said, I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to be raised up everywhere. And in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And lastly, remember Christ, the one who always endured well. Your sympathetic high priest who sees and sustains, who intercedes for and empowers you, who sent the Spirit of God to indwell you, and who promises to raise you to life everlasting with Him. So truly, in the midst of our trials, even when they persist, we have much to remember, much to be motivated by in faith. So that's chapter 40. Chapter 41 begins with this two two years passing. Um, So in the story of Joseph... There are three pairs of dreams, right? Joseph's first two, uh, the butler and the baker, and then Pharaoh has two as well. So in the first two, they have parallel meaning. Joseph's mean the same thing. He's going to be exalted. His family's going to bow to him. In the second two, they had opposing meaning, right? One towards life, one towards death. And this third pair has parallel meanings as well. So Pharaoh wakes up uh, from a troubling evening, having had two eerie dreams. In the first Seven fat cows come out of the river, most likely the Nile River, and they begin grazing. And then seven malnourished sort of skeleton cows come out of the river after them. Suddenly and without provocation, the demon cows tear into the fat cows and devour them. They completely eat them up. There's nothing left. But they look no different. They look just as sort of ghoulish as they started. So Pharaoh wakes up. He's a bit troubled. (laughs) But after shaking off uh, the sort of mad cow dream, Pharaoh falls asleep and he dreams again. Same pattern of events, but different images. So this time, heads of wheat on a stalk. Seven strong, eaten by seven weak wheat heads. He wakes up, noticeably troubled. He calls for the wise men, right? He calls for everybody, gather his uh, magicians and his royal court. And uh, this is perhaps significant to note here. 
it'll be repeated in the Moses story and following, uh, that this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. Um, Each culture really had their class of sages, their class of magicians and soothsayers, those who instructed the people in the ways of the gods, those who deciphered the will and the ways of gods, those who sought to predict and affect the future, those who sought blessing on the crops and saving in military uh, situations. So yes, magicians, soothsayers, wise men, and Egypt was quite well known for theirs. In this case, none of them were able to supply the proper interpretation to Pharaoh's dreams, though I'm sure they gave it a valiant effort, right? In the flurry of the morning then, Pharaoh frustrated and these people trying to interpret his dreams and him not being able to get the answer that he's looking for. The flurry of the morning, perhaps while bringing the frustrated Pharaoh his morning tea or something like this, the chief cupbearer, his memory is jogged. He says, hey, I remember a time when I was in a situation just like this, right? I had a dream and none of the magicians were able to give me an answer because he didn't have any magicians around him. So he says to Pharaoh, you know, Master Pharaoh, I really don't want to bring this up, but you remember that time that you were like really mad at me and threw me into jail and kind of messed up? Well, I met a Hebrew down there. And when I had a dream, he was able to give me the true interpretation. I know it was the true interpretation because it took place after three days. So, I mean, I don't know what you think of a Hebrew slave coming up here, but if you want to, it's an option. I'm sure he's probably still down there. So the story takes this very dramatic turn as Joseph is called out of prison. He's bathed, shaved, changed, and rushed into the presence of Pharaoh himself where the first words out of Joseph's mouth are humble, frank, and righteous correction of Pharaoh. Right? So he gets in there and Pharaoh says, I hear that you're able to interpret dreams. And he says, oh, no, God can interpret dreams. God can give the interpretation of dreams. And he's talking to a man who believes himself to be a god. He's in the court of the Pharaoh, and they revered Pharaoh as one of the deities. And so he's saying, yeah, God can tell you what your dream means, God. (laughs) Right? Pharaoh's on the lookout for something he's unable to provide. It's exposing to Pharaoh, but Joseph promises him, he says that God will give him an answer of peace. I don't know if Perhaps God has shared things with him beforehand, or if he simply has confidence in this. Uh, We don't exactly know why he says that, but he says, you will have an interpretation of shalom. It's a very Hebrew thing to say. So, Pharaoh reiterates his dreams to him. We won't go through that, but you can see that there's a little bit more color the second time around, and Pharaoh really is troubled by these things. Uh, he's, He's quite bothered. I think particularly because the dreams happen twice. If you have a one-off dream, maybe you can brush it off, but if the exact same thing happens with other images in another place, but the same exact story, you know, he's he's quite concerned here. So after hearing the dreams again, once again, Joseph wastes no time in replying. He says, well, the two dreams are the same dream. It's saying the same thing, the same message. And you received it twice because it is from God and it is urgent. The fulfillment of your dreams is beginning today. So let me tell you what's going to happen. The groups of seven healthy cows and seven heads of wheat represent seven consecutive years of abundant harvest, fullness, right? You're going to be able to pull in more from the ground than you ever did before. 
The groups of seven gaunt cows and withered heads of grain represent seven consecutive years of severe drought and famine that are going to follow. These last seven will be so difficult that the previous seven years of abundance will be completely forgotten from memory. Keep that in mind. Because as uh, Joseph names his children, that's significant. So the previous years are forgotten. All the good stuff is forgotten. That's the end of the interpretation. But does Joseph stop there? Did he stop there with the butler? No. Does he stop there with Pharaoh? No. He's always moving. He's always thinking and using wisdom. He's exercising discernment. And he jumps right in to advice to Pharaoh. He says, okay, well, here's your interpretation, and here's exactly what you should do. I have a plan. He says, you should find the most wise man you can find. <clears throat> All the wise men just failed him, right? Nobody in his court was able. No one can give him the interpretation. Here stands uh, this alien slave. And he's like, find the wisest guy you can, whoever that might be. And here's his plan. I'll give him his plan because I'm a really wise man. Right? His, his plan is for the next seven years, take 20% of everything from everybody's field, and this is how you're going to do it, and you're going to set people out from under him so that you'll be able to survive the seven years. I've done the math, it works. He's like, you did the math in like 20 seconds? He's like, yeah, this is how it, this is how it goes. <laughs> and so what happens next at this point is predictable, but from the beginning of the story, unthinkable. First, the ruler of the world power looks around at his royal court and he says, well, can we find this type of a person anywhere else? A person who has the spirit of God in him. The last time we saw a spirit of God was Genesis 1-2 when the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And Pharaoh's identifying. He says, no, God's in this man. That is fascinating. That Pharaoh identifies God's presence in Joseph, which often does, and this is how it was revealed to Pharaoh too, it often reveals itself through wisdom because God is the source of wisdom. So to pursue it or to possess it involves pursuing him. He is the fountain of wisdom. And so Joseph, as we've looked at, the past few weeks, he's the, the ideal wise man. And as the ideal wise man, he's filled to overflowing with this magnificent ability to live skillfully in righteousness in a broken world according to the way that God would have him to live. If nothing else, consider that a teaser for Proverbs coming soon to a pulpit near you this summer. Uh, we're looking forward to jumping into Proverbs as well. And we'll see a lot of these same themes. But Pharaoh's not done. He doesn't just say, the Spirit of God is in this man. Look, he's, he has more God than any of us. He turns and the crescendo continues. There is no one as discerning and wise as you. So I'm going to make you the ruler of Egypt, second only to me. I'm going to take the ring, not just out of my like wardrobe, I'm taking my signet ring off my hand and putting it on to your hand. You have authority, you have power. You have wealth. Let me give you a new linen wardrobe. Let me give you this gold chain of authority. Remember sort of some of the echoes of our past stories. 
men giving their garments to people, right? And here's the final sort of crescendo in the clothing narrative here that Joseph gets a new wardrobe, a new ring, and a new chain. And he says, let me give you my second chariot. After all, I have so many of them, right? He's very rich and he gives him a vehicle, the best in the land. Everywhere you go, all of Egypt is going to bow down to you, a Hebrew slave, I'm going to give you absolute authority. No one so much as sneezes without your permission in all of the land of Egypt. I'm going to give you a new name. Zaphnath Paniah. There's a couple different options for what that means. Most lean towards God speaks and lives. (laughs) Pharaoh attesting that God had spoken through and lives in Joseph. And then he gives him a girl. Gives him a new wife. Asenath. Who's the daughter of a pagan priest. So Joseph, in one day, goes from the lowest prison that exists in Egypt with the least amount of rights, all the way up to be second in command, to be the prime minister of Egypt. This is who he is. Talk about a completely new physical identity, the lowest, most vulnerable point up to a nearly untouchable height from a physical standpoint. Joseph rose from the prison to the palace, and he gained the world. The most natural next line in the story, I think, would be, if we've, just think Genesis. So Joseph lost sight of God, for his heart was turned by the comforts of Egypt. That's that's what it would read normally, right? He got everything. The richest man in the world just made him the second richest man in the world. But the account reads otherwise. And I direct your attention primarily to the naming of his two sons. In verse 51, you know, you see these these seven years are are taking place, seven years of plenty. Um, And Joseph names his firstborn an Egyptian name? No. Even though Joseph now has an Egyptian name, he gives his children Hebrew names. And he names his firstborn Manasseh. Remember how the seven years of famine were going to make you forget the good years? Well, his son's name Manasseh means to make forgetful. But he's not forgetting the good years. He's actually forgetting the evil of his life. He says to make forgetful concerning the toil and concerning his father's house. This is something that comes up a few times in wisdom literature. And what he's referencing is that God has the ability and his kindness to fill someone who's experienced many days of darkness in their life with the significant amount of days of light, days of hope, days of establishment in him. And that causes someone to have the memory, the sharpness of the memory, the sharpness of the pain fade, something that God's able to do. doesn't do it all the time, doesn't do it to every person, but he can do this. And he did this with Joseph. So what Joseph, I believe, is saying is that the two sharpest wounds that he experienced in life, which was the betrayal of his brothers, that's his family's house, and then the lies about his character that prompted a decade in prison, those things are beginning to wane because of God's kindness to him. He attributes that. He attributes his healing from deep wounds to God by naming his son Manasseh. Then his second son, is named Ephraim, 
another Hebrew name. And he names him fruitfulness. Fruitfulness in the land of oppression. That's what Ephraim means is fruitfulness. In the very place that Joseph was once imprisoned, now Joseph rules. In the land that purchased him as a slave, now is under his command. He's describing, and, and he's in the middle of the seven years of fruitfulness as well. He's, I mean, he has the whole, whole world in his fingertips. And so he says, God has given me fruitfulness. He's healed some of the sharpness of the pain of the past. He's given me forgetfulness. And then he also has restored me. He's established me. He's given me fruitfulness. So he attributes his success and abundance to God. So did Joseph lose his faith because he was given a bunch of stuff? No. He didn't. In fact, the very fact that he was a wise man was amplified because a wise poor man and a wise rich man are still the same wise man, right? But the riches are simply demonstrates. It shows his wisdom on an amplified scale. So for the next 14 years, following the event that Pharaoh uh, established him, Joseph lived the fulfillment of Pharaoh's dreams. Imagine the boldness of, uh, I mean, the boldness of Joseph and the willingness of Pharaoh to take on a 14-year prophetic fulfillment. Like for, for Egypt to agree with Joseph and say, okay, let's take 20% of everybody's stuff for the next seven years. Like, can you imagine you're eight, they have a good harvest and they're like, oh, oh Joseph, you know, like he's just living large on Pharaoh's stuff. But no, they, they believe that it's true um, because they believe the spirit of God is in him. And Joseph courageously gives them the, the interpretation from the Lord. So, seven years of fullness, seven years of emptiness. But the next narrative in chapter 42 is going to interject into Joseph's story right after the famine begins. Uh, So read verse 57. This will set us up for next week. He says, so all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the the famine was severe in all lands. And so that sets us up for something that even Joseph doesn't expect to have happen which is his brothers are going to show up in Egypt and ask him to buy grain and they don't recognize him. So look forward to that. Let's reflect for a few minutes on application. We've mentioned a few things throughout. First, the the importance of endurance during seasons of trials, which is easier said than done because we often hope in the expiration of the trial before really the establishment of our hope in Christ himself. Um, So ask yourself the question, which one am I really hoping in? Just at ending or in God sustaining me through it. Secondly, the courage to always have God's name on our lips. Joseph's pretty bold when he walks right into Pharaoh's court, a nobody of nobodies, and yet he's the one who has the Spirit of God in him. And so he's very comfortable standing in the face, uh, before the face of somebody who believes himself to be a deity. And he says, you're not a deity. I worship the deity, and he can fill me with the interpretation you need. So perhaps in our, in our workplaces, with our unbelieving family, with our neighbors, all sorts of people. Let us, let us be bold with the name of Christ. May it always be ready on our lips. Um, and then we also talked a little bit about the importance of endurance in seasons of success, that gaining or losing the world's treasures, it really reveals our hearts more than it does change them. So don't place your hope in gaining the treasure of the world. Uh, Joseph responds well to getting everything because he was already a wise person. So now, and here again is sort of a preview to Proverbs, now is a good day for seeking wisdom, which really is pursuing God as the one who is the source of wisdom. It's a good day for that every day, whether you have treasure or you don't have treasure, because it prepares you for poverty and for wealth. Um, 
But in chapter 41, those are sort of reflections from 40. In chapter 41, I think most significantly, is the very strong idea that God rules the nations. You have here the world power. You have here Egypt. You have deity, little d, deity. But God is sovereign in all of the ways of man. He rules. Pharaoh receives, not generates revelation. Right? Does he, he gets it while he's asleep. God gives him revelation. God humbles one of the greatest world powers. God chooses to give exclusive interpretation rights to his servant who's in prison and guides Joseph to be the ruler and savior of the peoples of the world, right? Egypt would have died without Joseph. And so we quote these verses often, but I hope you find them a comfort. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And Psalm 115, 3, 2 and 3, the Gentiles are saying, where is God? And then verse 3 says, our God is in the heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. And so God rules America. God rules Russia and China and Turkey and Iran and North Korea. God rules. He does what he wants. Nothing exists outside of his sovereign umbrella. No one can flex their power without the permission and even, you could say, enabling of God. For where does their muscles find their might? In the very sustaining of Christ. Christ sustains the old creation. And so as we turn the page into a new year, hmm, what, a, what an interesting national and international year we have ahead of us, isn't it? Right on the national scene, we're, we have an election year ahead of us. Very significant, very polarizing, very um, difficult year to walk through for many people. And definitely a year that already has, going into it, international rumblings, questions. What's going to happen? What's going to happen with wars? What's going to happen with world powers? Where are we going? While the world around us shakes, is nervous, and even trembles, even the very ground underneath us shakes, let us stand with unending certainty on the rock of Christ. Nothing is going to happen that's not outside of his control. And we do, have, it's perhaps overstated or it's trite a little bit, but we do know the end of the story. We know where we're going. We know what the end of Revelation describes. That Christ is strong and sure. Christ's gospel is true and it is advancing. Christ's kingdom will be established on this earth as it is in heaven. Perhaps this year will be the year of his appearing. We don't know, but let us wait with awareness and with hope.